You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's Wednesday, August 10th, 2022, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, the Black Cat ransomware gang hits an energy company in Luxembourg, Moxa issues patches for two vulnerabilities, a look at ransomware gangs and their interest in industrial targets, ICS security advisories, new security legislation passes the U.S. House of Representatives and is set to become law, some insider threat news, Spain arrests nuclear plant employees, and the human factor in industrial security. Our guest is Bryson Bort from Scythe on threat emulation for critical infrastructure, season three of Hack the Plant with the Atlantic Council and the ICS Village at DEF CON in collaboration with CISA. In the Learning Lab, Jim Gilson, technical leader at Dragos Global Services team, discusses Security Directive Pipeline 2021-02C, Pipeline Cybersecurity Mitigation Actions, Contingency Planning and Testing with Mark Urban. The Black Cat ransomware privateers, also known as ALF-V and generally regarded as a dark side successor or simply as dark side rebranded, claimed responsibility for an attack on Kreos, a Luxembourg company that operates a major Western European gas pipeline, Bleeping Computer reports. According to the record, the group claims to have stolen 150 gigabytes of data that they say includes contracts, passports, bills, and emails. They threatened to leak the data on Monday, but as of the afternoon, no data had been released. Creos's corporate parent, Encivo, said late last week that it was continuing to investigate the incident, which has affected its customer-facing portals. Like its immediate ancestor, Darkside, responsible for last year's cyber attack against Colonial Pipeline, Black Cat is based in Russia and has shown an interest in targeting Western energy infrastructure. The Luxembourg operation is a major one. Its reach goes far beyond the Grand Duchy. Industrial networking provider Moxa has patched two serious vulnerabilities in its endport Ethernet to serial converter devices, Security Week reports. The vulnerabilities could be used to launch denial-of-service attacks against the devices. The flaws were discovered by researchers at NGARD Security, who notified the vendor in March. Moxa coordinated with CISA, and CISA published an advisory on July 26th. In addition to applying the security patch, CISA offers the following recommendations. First, Minimize network exposure for all control system devices and or systems and ensure they are not accessible from the Internet. Second, locate control system networks and remote devices behind firewalls and isolate them from business networks. And third, when remote access is required, use secure methods such as virtual private networks. Recognizing VPNs may have vulnerabilities and should be updated to the most current version available. Also recognize VPN is only as secure as its connected devices. 
Ransomware continues to present a threat to industrial operations. What are the gangs interested in these days? On Tuesday, August 9th, Dragos released its industrial ransomware analysis for the second quarter of 2022. While the threat actors' interests and targeting can shift, the report includes a quick rundown of what the opposition's interests look like now. Some of the threat actors target by sector. Dragos describes three of these. Karakurt has been targeting mainly transportation entities. Vice Society has been targeting only automotive manufacturing entities. And Lockbit 2.0 is the only group that targeted the pharmaceutical, mining, and water treatment sectors. Others show a geographical focus. Moses' staff has only targeted Israel. Black Basta, Ransom House, and Everest have only targeted entities in the U.S. and Europe. Quantum and Lorenzo have only targeted North American-based entities. And finally, the threat actors shift. Old ones grow quiescent and new ones start making noise. Lapsus, Klopp, Leaks, and Rook were active in the first quarter, but not now. Black Basta, Midas Leaks, Pandora, and Ransom House have been busy in the second quarter, but were nowhere to be seen in the first. In general, ransomware attacks were fewer in the second quarter than they had been in the first, but on the other hand, the more recent attacks were more consequential. Dragos closes its report with a prediction, saying, Due to the changes in ransomware groups themselves, Dragos assesses with moderate confidence that new ransomware groups will appear in the next quarter, whether as new or reformed ones. Dragos assesses with moderate confidence that ransomware with destructive capability will continue to target OT operations, given the continuous political tension between Russia and Western countries. CISA has issued 13 new ICS advisories since we last spoke with you. These affect systems produced by Rockwell, Mitsubishi, Delta Electronics, Honeywell, and Moxa. If you're interested in the details, check them out at cisa.gov slash uscert slash ICS slash advisories. They're all there, and they're all worth at least a quick once-over. Security Week reports that the U.S. House of Representatives passed two cybersecurity bills this week, both of them with implications for industrial security. First, the Ransomware Act, the acronym is short for Reporting Attacks from Nations Selected for Oversight and Monitoring Web Attacks and Ransomware from Enemies. The bill itself is an update of the Safe Web Act of 2006, giving the Federal Trade Commission the authority to share evidence with foreign law enforcement agencies to aid investigations of cybercrime. The amendments will require the FTC to report on cross-border complaints involving cyber threats, specifically calling out attacks carried out by Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. The second measure is the Energy Cybersecurity University Leadership Act. This will require the Department of Energy to establish an Energy Cybersecurity University Leadership Program in which graduate students and postdoctoral researchers would receive financial assistance to take courses that integrate cybersecurity and energy infrastructure. Spanish police have arrested two nuclear power plant employees accused of attempting to manipulate Spain's radioactivity alert network between March and June of 2021. Hackreed quotes, The investigation team identified that the intrusion was performed in two stages. First, the suspects gained unauthorized control of the DGPCE's computer system 
to delete a web application that managed the RAR system. During the second stage, they targeted over 300 out of 800 sensors over three months. This caused connectivity failures between the sensors and the control centers. Eventually, their radioactivity levels detection capacity was considerably reduced. It is alleged that the hackers operated via a Madrid-based public hospitality network. Interference with accurate sensor feeds is particularly disturbing, and access via a public hospitality network is astonishing. Those were malicious insiders at the nuclear plant in Spain, of course, but there are also well-intentioned but wayward insiders who pose a different kind of threat. Skate Offense has released the results of a survey finding that 79% of OT experts believe human error is the greatest risk for compromise to OT systems. 83% of those surveyed believe there is a significant shortage of trained OT workers, with not enough new workers being trained to meet the growing demand. Additionally, 69% believe this shortage puts organizations at higher risk than ever before. Here, the remedy isn't punitive, but rather supportive. We know, we know personnel. Can't live with them, can't live without them, but seriously, if the staff is undertrained and overworked, you can expect bad things to happen. Take care of the people who take care of you. Bryson Bort is founder of attack emulation platform developer Scythe and co-founder of the ICS Village at DEF CON. I spoke with him at the recent SANS ICS Security Summit in Orlando. So let's start off with just some sort of background high-level stuff on you. When you're out and about and you know, you're at a cocktail party or something and you're meeting someone for the first time, how do you explain what it is you do for a living? Well, to start with, I usually just stare at them awkwardly and uh, hope that that's enough. But then they typically press for more information. Yeah. Well, so my full-time job is the CEO of Scythe. We, right. we spun it out of Grimm after a large uh, organization came to us in 2016, asked us to build a one-off implant. I'd never been asked to do that commercially before. I thought that was a really interesting request. Hmm. And I had not been looking to start a product company. I'd never been looking to start a product. Just doing what we did at Grimm, which was delivering high-end services that really made a difference in the world. And suddenly here was this opportunity. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so when I talk about what do I do now, um, it really kind of depends on who you're talking to, hmm. right? And I think this is an important point that we struggle with in this industry because we're so fond of our own echo chamber. Hmm. And we throw out acronyms, we throw out ideas, and we just presume almost everybody's going to automatically understand that. And so that's one of the things that you really distill when you build a product is being able to simplify what that is to an audience that gets it as best as possible. So in short, when I describe what I do besides um, as the CEO mostly being Dr. Phil to everybody <laughs> in the <Right>. company, <laughs> right. is we're there to bring the realistic threats in, right? Um, Mike Tyson says that uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. So let's practice sparring with a real boxing partner instead of shadow boxing with ourselves. And that's what the platform does. That's what we do at Scythe. Okay. Well, let's walk through that together. I mean, when we're talking about threat emulation in the ICS world, 
from a practical point of view, how does that play out? Yeah, it's a great question. And in fact, that's uh, the, the real core of the talk that uh, Ian Anderson and I are doing at SANS ICS is looking at what really needs to be considered for an OT risk assessment. And I think the first part is recognizing that IT is a part of that. 2012, Saudi Aramco, 30,000 plus computers in only the IT part of the enterprise, paperweights overnight due to that attack. Mm -hmm. What happened? That affected OT operations. When we look at the most common attack vectors, the most common attack vectors are through IT, right? IT is by its very nature the necessity of business operations for an enterprise to run, and it's the thing that's internet accessible that is available to everything. Right. And so when you look at how the structure of the enterprise actually works, and this is part of what we do with this talk, is the Purdue model was not really designed for the enterprise architecture of cybersecurity. And as a result, when we look at all those levels, we get this false sense of security of defense in depth because look at all of these levels. Doesn't right. it naturally give you that intuitively? And the reality is from an attacker perspective, there's only three parts to your enterprise. The IT, which we were just describing, which is the most common attack vector, then beachhead systems, right? That's that DMZ. Those are the high-level control systems that typically speak the same operating systems as an enterprise device, just typically unpatched from two, you know, two generations ago. Right. So I run into Windows 7 on an HMI, <laughs> right? Okay. And they are accessible into the IT component. So I have the ability to get to it. The same approach that typically worked for me in the IT environment to get there is going to work on that control system. And here's the thing then. Then that's the final layer, right? All of the more specialized embedded and operational technologies that are doing the physical effects in the world, they're just dumb devices that take their commands from up high, right? They, they speak these unique protocols. They have unique processor architectures. And it's all of this unintentional obscurity, I guess you could probably say it's intentional because some of these uh, manufacturers intentionally do that to, to force you to stay with them, right? right but right. they listen to whatever that higher level system is telling it to do. And so when I'm conducting a risk assessment, it's really understanding the IT to OT convergence. And then how do I look at what's happening from a control system perspective down? And so I'm looking at access and impact at IT level at Beachhead, I'm looking at access with what I would call simulated impact down to the OT level because I'm not actually going to change something in production because I can't affect what's providing my electricity. I can't affect that system that is a safety mechanism, right? Yeah. But I can see the access to it, which ties to what a, cam a realistic campaign would have been. And I can then impute what the impact would have been of that operation. That all makes sense together? I think so. So when we run an emulation process, uh, you know, we kick things off, we, we, we run through uh, from point A uh, to point Z, what do we get on the other side of that? Um, is this a reporting kind of thing? Um, what's the actual process look like? Oh, sure. So I, I use the metaphor of, Think of, think of your environment as this big block of marble. Inside that marble is this beautiful statue for you, right? Right. And in between you and that statue is the visibility to understand what the hell is even happening on the assets you even know that you have. And then the ability to get the monitoring tuned in enough where the human engagement, right, the alert actually has value. 
And that is really f***ing hard. Okay. Right? That's where this stuff is so tricky because it turns out malicious traffic doesn't have a simple little evil bit to tell you it's malicious traffic. Sure. Right? It's intent more than it is the traffic itself. Right? If I'm selling a PLC to open, how do I know the context that that's good or bad? And the PLC certainly doesn't know. It doesn't know its own operational parameters to know that it's triggered bad. That, again, goes back to what those beachhead systems responsibilities are, right? That's what that SIS and those DCSs are supposed to be doing, is doing that themselves. And so what are we getting out of all of this is seeing where is the tech, where's the people side of this? And I cannot emphasize that enough. Too often in this space, we can do the f***ing nerd things for the f***ing nerd reasons, and we just focus on the technical component. Right. I don't care how good your tools are if the people can't use them. And so it's putting those two together. It's partially insight into what is working, what is not, what do I see, what don't I see, and then the ability for people to use those things as they go through a traditional post-breach response, right? How quickly can I detect things and identify that that traffic was anomalous and malicious? How quickly can I get into the details of understanding then now that I have this you know, initial f- smoke, where else is there potential fire? And then, of course, kicking those f***ers out of our network. Yeah. When you say people, though, are, are we talking IT people, OT people, and how, what, what's the Rosetta Stone between them? Exactly. So both. Yeah. And that's a, that's a key component is the two need to be able to do this together. Um, IT can't exist in its own vacuum and OT can't exist in its own vacuum, but it's natural that they would because they have very different requirements, very different understandings. And again, it's not as simple as just mashing these together and IT saying, hey, I've now got visibility into my SIM of the stuff that's going on in your network, but I don't understand and don't know what to do with it and vice versa. So it's really not just as simple as like putting the two puzzle pieces together. And that's part of where I recommend doing these kinds of engagements of course, you know, with a platform like ours, but right. doing any of these kinds of engagements, however you want to do them, so that by going through the process, you learn and understand, and there's that cross-functional understanding that's more than just, hey, there's a paper glossary of what these terms mean, but actually getting to see them in practice. As you and your colleagues are doing these things, are there things that come up over and over again? Or are there, is there low-hanging fruit that... Right? You see where I'm getting? Yeah. Um, Low-hanging fruit starts with uh, the cultural divide between IT and OT that we've seen. Again, talking to the echo chamber, I think a lot of us in the the expert realm take for granted that the OT side understands the true impact of cybersecurity in their environment. Hmm. I don't think that's universal. I think that is still a a nascent concept. There are certainly forward-leaning aspects of that. Uh, the national headlines of the last two years have also helped push that. Right. But put this in the context of even IT cybersecurity is a relatively new concept too. So firewalls did not commonly exist until 20 years ago. Hear that statement out loud. Until 20 years ago, it did not occur to us that our network should not just be everyone's network. Right. 20 years ago. 10 years ago, with Target was the first time that commercial organizations started to be like, wait, there's something to what you nerds have been saying. Like, we should, <laughs> we should have more than AV and firewalls. Like, this is a real market. And that's IT, right? Yeah. Now look at OT, which is still further behind on that. And I think it's all very understandable to recognize the, the playing field we're working at. So that cultural divide, that organizational buy-in, that understanding is still a common area to work on. That is the biggest low-hanging fruit I see time and time again. 
And we can't forget that and try to focus on these edge security problems, which we experts love to talk about versus the basics to get even to that, right? Playing mm -hmm. on the same checkerboard. Um, in terms of what I see technically, PowerShell, PowerShell, PowerShell. Yeah. Um, so hmm. to, to, to translate this for the audience, right? Um, PowerShell is an organic capability to Microsoft Windows. It is a powerful capability that allows me to do remote management and administration of my systems. Hackers are lazy. I don't want to bring my own special code if I can use your code. And PowerShell is this phenomenal resource to allow me to do literally anything, and it's everywhere that there's Windows. And I think um, with a lot of the engagements I've been doing for the past year with different uh, energy asset owners, them truly seeing that impact into their OT environment has been a giant wake-up call. Hmm. So is it, I mean, is it as simple as if you absolutely don't need it, please disable PowerShell? You can't. Yeah. Because uh, it's too baked in. It's, I mean, uh, the, uh, the recent exploit, uh, MSDT, that just came out, that actually ties back into PowerShell too, right? These, right. It's, it's a part of the environment, right? You can look at it from kind of that NERC SIP perspective of, like, I, I should block anything that I don't need to have. But some of these things, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and even if you do, the fact that there are going to be places where it exists, those are going to be the targets that I'm going to get to. I see. Let's talk about um, the ICS Village at DEF CON, something that you're very involved with. You're one of the, the founders of it. Um, can you give us a little preview of, of what to expect this year? I know you've got something new coming up in Escape Room. Yeah, so uh, the ICS Village is a 501c3 nonprofit um, co-founded with uh, Tom Van Norman. And our goal is to build critical infrastructure to make it accessible all the way to the folks who go, what is a programmable logic controller? to IT folks who don't understand that you are in an industrial control system environment. Where do you think your water and electricity comes from, right? That is a factor in whatever you're doing, let alone the fact that you might have physical security, you might have door locks, you might have HVAC. Those are all industrial control systems. And then the final piece where we do a lot of work with the exhibits and the capture the flags that we build is providing that initial on-ramp so that IT security practitioners can begin to get exposed to hands-on operational technology security uh, and that be a potential career path for them. Hmm. So what we've got going on at DEF CON is uh, we are doing the, the world debut of this complete escape room. So it's an industrial control system environment. There'll be groups that come in and they have to basically do a combination of uh, multidisciplinary elements. So it's not just, hey, can I do ladder logic, but some things that people do and don't understand to be able to break out. Uh, and that's hosted by the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. Yep. Or sorry, CISA. They, CISA. They, 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 the they CISA are, folks have to remain... They're a bit prickly about that, aren't they? They <laughs> have. I, I, got lectured at, uh, I got lectured at Hack the Capital um, for, for pronouncing it CISA. And they were like, yeah. Bryson, could you please say CISA? <laughs> yes. Um, so I, if you're listening, CISA, I did it right after a few attempts. Yeah, um, yeah. So we got that. We'll have uh, a, a number of different hands-on activities. Uh, we'll have a bunch of talks. Uh, some of the things that we're going to be doing different this year uh, is we're going to be having ISAC-themed the ISAC um, talks. So the, some of the different ISACs are going to be bringing their own little like subtrack of talks into DEF CON. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is we wanted to highlight them as organizations and a lot of the good work that some of the smaller ISACs don't get to do on their own. 
and uh, we'll be doing some uh, group tabletop exercises. So for folks that uh, either have never done it or, or have, you always learn from getting to do these kinds of things um, with a, a guided tabletop uh, as a part of it. And then we'll have hands-on PLC stuff and different kinds of things to, to learn and experiment with. All right. Well, Bryce and Bort, thanks so much for taking the time for us today. Absolutely. Happy to do it. In this week's Learning Lab, Jim Gilson, technical leader at Drago's Global Services team, discusses Security Directive Pipeline 2021-02C, Pipeline Cybersecurity Mitigation Actions, Contingency Planning and Testing, along with Mark Urban. Thanks, Dave. On July 21st, we saw the release of the Department of Homeland Security's TSA Security Directive Pipeline 2021-02C. Now, that's a mouthful. That was the latest in a series of initiatives driven by the federal government to increase cybersecurity in sectoral in sectors rather of industrial infrastructure. Now, you can go to get a summary infographic on the new regulations by clicking on the link in the show notes. Uh, but to talk about specifics, I'm joined by uh, Jim Gilson, part of Drago's global services team that helps our customers build effective OT security programs. So Jim has spent 20 years in the engineering labs at uh, NIST, seven more years as a consultant, and now he's been with Dragos for three years focusing on industrial cyber risk, maturity, and standards. Jim, welcome. Thanks, great to be here. I wanted to step back and get some context as this is one example of a much broader effort by the US federal government around security for industrial infrastructure. We've seen efforts around electrical utilities, water utilities, and this newest one around liquid and gas pipelines. Jim, what what do you see is behind these efforts? Well, it's really a a recognition of how critical these sectors are and and understanding the risks uh, to uh, the industry itself uh, and also the uh, public from it. So say a water system or electric grid fails or, or falls victim to a cybersecurity incident, um, the loss of those critical infrastructures can have huge impacts. Um, in oil and gas uh, last year, we saw a colonial pipeline shut down uh, because they feared a breach could impact their safety systems and put the public at risk. Um, a lot of times these uh, sectors, um, they underinvest or um, they just don't have as many resources uh, at their disposal. Uh, And on top of all this, we've seen a number of the cybersecurity incidents uh, really increase over the years, Uh, whether it's been targeted OT attacks or simply bleed over from IT, the number of potential threats is always continuing to rise. And so we've seen some efforts from the U.S. federal government. Last year, uh, we saw um, the U.S. Department of Energy uh, release the 100-day plan for power grid cybersecurity. Um, And then earlier this year, uh, the EPA uh, started up a similar plan for water utilities. Uh, Then back in May of 2021, uh, President Biden signed the executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity, which created uh, the Cyber Safety Review Board, among other things. Uh, In terms of other countries uh, releasing things recently, 
the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's uh, National Cybersecurity Authority released their OT cybersecurity controls for critical infrastructure earlier this year. Uh, and then Australia released uh, their security legislation amendment for critical infrastructure uh, regulations for critical infrastructure uh, was also uh, recently announced as well. All right. So a lot of activity across uh, different sectors. Let's turn to oil and gas pipelines. This new regulation was probably at least influenced by what well, you mentioned, the Colonial Pipeline incident. I think that was May 2021. Can you give us a brief description of what happened there? In May of 2021, uh, Colonial Pipeline's IT systems were attacked by a cyber incident. Uh, basically, ransomware hit them uh, and encrypted a lot of their IT systems. Um, they lost a lot of their uh, their data, and uh, they chose to pay the ransom, uh, but the company also broke their connection between their IT and their OT systems uh, for fear that the ransomware would spread uh, into the OT environment. Okay, so that that's a highly simplified view of the of of the incident. Maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of the implications or the fallout. Sure. In total, the company only shut down their pipeline for six days. And while that may not seem like a lot, um, it actually resulted in a, a large impact, um, some out of fear, some out of actual production uh, issues. There were like 10,000 gas stations approximately that ran out of gas, more out of fear from the public versus the actual uh, um, loss of gas uh, in those regions. The company itself had to pay out $4 million plus in ransomware. Um, some of it was later recovered by, I believe, the FBI. Gas prices uh, rose during that time. A lot of, uh, a lot of that was speculation, um, but it was nine to something in the, the 10 to 20 like cents a gallon. Um, and even a flight uh, airline flights were impacted because of the uh, um, the fear uh, and uh, fuel deliveries that were coming through the pipeline. All right, so uh, a lot of implications for those with their own OT dependent businesses or operations. Think about the loss of revenue for a week as an example impact, uh, plus all the investigation, restart costs, the time and effort to communicate and manage that sort of crisis. That's a lot of impact and you know, to the public, whether an actual impact or the fear that it creates among the population, you see the implications of the, you know, of an attack like this or an incident like this, right? So that's one piece of the context. So let's talk specifics about the new TSA directive. Jim, can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So on July 21st of this year, uh, TSA released a revised version of their directive. Uh, originally, they released uh, a version back in shortly after Colonial Pipeline, uh, July of uh, 2021. And they revised that just recently uh, this year, um, effective July 27th uh, for owner operators of oil and gas pipelines. With that, they have to submit a cybersecurity implementation plan uh, within 90 days. And overall, the, the goal is to protect these critical gas and liquid pipelines from malicious cyber events. Um, specifically, 
Uh, they're trying to protect the national security, economy, and public health and safety of the U.S. Uh, and its citizens. Gotcha. And I think that's a, that's a direct quote out of the regulation. You said that this was an update, uh, the O2C. What's, what's the reason for the change or the update from the original one that was issued? As I said, um, the, the first one was issued fairly shortly after uh, Colonial Pipeline. And um, with everything that comes out like very quickly after an incident, a lot of that was quickly put together and, and didn't uh, take into account all of the things that it should have uh, when they were building it. They were trying to put something together very quickly. It was, the way it was written was very prescriptive. So it told them specifically how they needed to do things. It gave them very tight timelines for compliance. And there were a lot of things that were geared very much to the IT environment um, that didn't really apply as well to OT systems like Zero Trust and, and uh, multi-factor for all, all the systems. Many of the owner-operators were not really happy about the directives O2B. They said that the directives themselves were hard to use, the OT systems. Uh, in addition to that, they also had to apply uh, a lot of times for what are called alternative methods or compensating controls in order to show that they met the spirit of the requirement without being able to actually meet the direct requirement itself. So one of the things that uh, um, TSA did with this directive was they really made a major shift away from prescriptive requirements to performance-based or functional requirements. These are described more what has to be accomplished and why it has to be accomplished versus specifically how it needs to be done. And this allows owners and operators to really uh, find the solution that works best for their needs uh, while still trying to meet the goals uh, and, and meet those performance-based requirements. Gotcha. So that's interesting when you said they were treating OT almost like a whole computer or IT. That was a theme on uh, the last episode of Learning Lab where we we're talking about the difference between operational technology systems that often, you know, you can't just patch them because you have to shut down a plant. Right, it's different than updating your PC at home. The OT environment is vastly different, and that's uh, it's another proof point here. So that's just interesting. The update. So tell us then about a short explanation of what the newest rules are. Sure. So getting into a little more details, as I said before, um, they have ninety days to submit their cybersecurity implementation plan, um, and there's a few specific like major areas. This is too much to go through, uh, like the details are too much to go through here, but at least um, going through the major things. So identifying their critical cyber systems, then implementing network segmentation policies and controls. This, again, is, is that separation between IT and OT and separation between critical systems within their OT environment. Implementing secure access controls. So again, a lot of times these systems uh, maybe need to be accessed locally or remotely. Uh, and so they need to add extra access controls on top of that uh, to prevent unauthorized access. Implementing continuous monitoring. So making sure that they have the ability to detect uh, and um, sort of prevent and respond to a cybersecurity uh, threat affecting their cybersecurity uh, or their critical cyber systems. 
They do actually want you to look at uh, patching your systems if possible. And so uh, having a patch management program and a vulnerability management program within you, uh, the organization and having at least some plan for how to respond to potential patches that do come out uh, and then how you uh, manage ones that may not make operational sense for them. This implementation plan, um, the basically the company submits it, they have 90 days to submit that plan and then TSA and the company actually work together to approve it. Um, and once they have that approved, they have 60 more days to release a uh, an assessment program. So they have to develop an annual plan for assessing their program uh, and proactively looking to audit their systems to assess how well their cybersecurity measures are working. And then one last piece, owner-operators have to develop and maintain an up-to-date cybersecurity incident response plan as well. So not just planning their defenses and planning how they're going to assess their systems, but in the event that they do run into uh, an actual incident, how would they actually respond to that? There's some specifics about records and document procedures, but that's sort of the, the very short overview of the controls. Okay, so that's seven specific requirements. If you look at that, how does that relate to other to frameworks and standards like six two four four three or C two M two or the NIST CSF? The way these are written, it, it they are very compatible with a lot of those other frameworks, um, and, and I think TSA actually got um, recommendations to do that because. Uh, a lot of the other frameworks have additional guidance material and really have, uh, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, information that, that uh, OT organizations can use to help guide them and how to actually build these out internally. Um, and so the, they, a lot of the requirements go very much hand in hand with uh, 62443 and NIST and uh, C2M2 and CMMC and a lot of those other frameworks. Gotcha, Jim. Okay, so there is a bit of pushback from the earlier version of the TSA directives to prescriptive, not recognizing a lot of the distinct kind of nature of operational technology and how to properly secure that. This distilled version, perhaps a bit easier to act on and compatible with those more detailed controls. All right, Jim, thanks so much for your perspective today. Thanks a lot. For more information on the directives, you can access uh, the infographic at uh, dregos.com. The actual URL is in the show notes. Uh, we also are having a webinar that walks through the regulations in more detail. And if you're not an owner-operator of liquid and gas pipelines but want to take steps to secure your OT environment, uh, I encourage you to access uh, a couple podcast episodes ago was the five critical controls um, and uh, we have information on that on our website, but it's also just go back a couple uh, a couple episodes in this podcast. And you can find, again, all the links for these resources in the show notes. Uh, just go to your podcast manager uh, to access the show notes there. And thank you very much uh, once again for uh, the Learning Lab on Control Loop. This is Mark Urban. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. 
Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.